Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Claiming market share in today's global wedding industry is like fighting for a piece of a $300 billion bouquet flying through the air, and Shanlin Ma is reaching as high as she can. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and in this episode, we talk with the co-founder and CEO of Zola about her mission to streamline the gift-giving process, how tech is transforming the wedding industry, and how her website is reinventing wedding registries around the world. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, Shanlin Ma is many things. She's an Aussie, she's a Stanford grad, she's an alum of Yahoo and Gilt Group, and she's a New Yorker since 2008. Five years ago, Shan struck out on her own to start Zola.com. So let's go back in time um, to find out how she came to accomplish all this. We have to go back to Australia in the 1990s, right? Where instead of People Magazine and Us Weekly, you like to read what Fortune and other business magazines. And you were obsessed with Silicon Valley Yahoo and Sherry Yang in particular. Why were, you, yeah, why were you obsessed yeah. with these guys? I, growing up in Australia, you are literally and metaphorically isolated and on the other side of the world. Felt very removed from all the action and was reading a lot about the tech revolution that was underway in Silicon Valley in the US. And it really seemed at that time, at the heart of it, was this company Yahoo that was making information accessible in a really fun, personable way. And I loved the fact that Jerry Yang looked like me mm -hmm. and he really inspired me to think that if he could do that and impact so many people around the world, maybe I could one day too. And you had a Jerry Yang poster hang in your room as well, so we're told. <laughs> She's not denying it. Maybe a couple of small photos from magazines. Where do you get that, by the way? Is it a full-size poster? Or no, like... no, 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 no. It feels like cutouts of articles. Cutouts. So... <laughs> right, well, Jerry Yang and his story um, inspired you to the holy grail of tech entrepreneurs, which is Stanford. Explain what Stanford offered you and how that was your next step to getting to Silicon Valley and forming your own company. Well, you have to imagine I was reading these magazines of companies like Yahoo, and I really wanted to get there, but I had no idea how to do that because I'd never worked in technology before. I'd never knew, known anyone to work in tech or work in the US before. And so somehow I thought, I don't know how to get there, but it seems like all these people went to Stanford. So I guess you have to go to Stanford in order to get to Silicon Valley. And I ended up uh, applying to a bunch of business schools, was lucky enough to get into my dream school, and it was like my entire life changed. And that was a big moment for you. Now, as a tech founder who invests in other startups, do you still believe that Stanford is the way to open the door to the tech world and founding your own company? No, many of the founders that I've met have, who I've invested in actually did not go to Stanford. Uh, but the thing I think that, that people have in common who have founded great companies or who are working on great ideas 
is, is a lot about what I saw at Stanford, which is, first of all, it's the start. Mm -hmm. It's getting started. It's thinking about how to create products that customers will love and then how to have a business model that really supports that in a sustainable, profitable way. And your story is amazing because you got into your dream school, you went to Stanford, then you went to work at your dream company, which is Yahoo, and there you met Jerry Yang as well. Um, well, I didn't quite meet no? him. The, actually, the best day at Yahoo was when I walked past him in the corridor. You didn't, did, you, did you talk to him? No, I was too starstruck. No! You didn't say I have a poster of you on my wall or anything? <laughs> All right, what, what did you get Actually, out of Yahoo? I never told him that, so let's no? keep it between us. Oh, OK. <laughs> Whoever's writing this up, breaking news. <laughs> well, what, OK, you worked at Yahoo. What did you get out of Yahoo? What, what was your goal um, in, in terms of working there, and what did you learn? I went into Yahoo wanting to learn how do I create a product like Yahoo.com that was the most visited website in the world. And what I ended up learning was the art of product management, and it's also a science. I got to work with some of the best product leaders and thinkers around, and they've all gone to run great product organizations and great companies. And the process that they pushed me to do, I still think about and work on even to this day, mm -hmm. which is how do you really identify the audience you're going after? How do you understand their needs, pain points, innovate solutions on their behalf, and then test to make sure that what you're building is going to have the impact you want on both the user and the business. And that process is hard, and it's what I learned um, from those years at Yahoo. Do you think being at Yahoo working there matched your expectations? Did it, did it surpass your expectations? It surpassed my expectations from a teaching and a mentoring perspective in that I got to work with people who I still think of today, what would they expect me to do mm -hmm. in, in this current problem I'm trying to solve? Mm -hmm. What was, was ultimately really hard to be a part of and, and one of the reasons that I wanted to move to a smaller company is I just saw a lot of innovators dilemma, which is you see competitors on the rise chipping away at the different products that you currently dominate in. And you know that maybe they're doing things the right way that are different to what you're doing, but the risk of you pivoting to what they're doing, and Google was the prime example of this, mm. has a huge cost and a huge risk to the business. And because there's 10,000 people in that company, it's really hard to understand who should make that decision and how do we know it's the right time and the right Okay, so you wanted to go somewhere smaller. How did you end up at Guilt Group? I, first and foremost, was a very obsessed customer. <laughs> Obsession <And> is a <laughs> key theme here. <laughs> yes. I was actually looking around in Silicon Valley at startups that were hot at that time. And then I started shopping on Guilt every day. And one day I thought, this is a great idea. <laughs> I'm spending a good amount of money here. And I looked at the team's page. It had an incredible team. And I thought I would love to work and learn from this team. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the jobs page, had the perfect job I was looking for. And I did what everyone tells you you should not do, which is I sent my resume in through the website. But I ended up getting a call the next day, got interviewed, flew myself to New York to get in front of the right people, and ended up getting the job. OK, lots of miracles here all working together. Um, 
the founder of Guilt Group, Kevin Ryan, eventually became a mentor to you. What did you learn from him at the time when you were working at Guilt Group, before you guys worked together later on at, uh, at Zola? I learned so much from him, and I still do. But I think the number one thing that is always in the back of my mind is, is that he always pushes you to be better than you think you can be. Mm -hmm. And so for everything that I'm doing, for every decision, I always think, would Kevin think this was a good decision? And what would be the pros and cons that he would argue on why it's a good or bad decision? And going through that thought process of being held to a higher standard by this <laughs> invisible mentor has, has been the greatest lesson for me and something that I try to pass to my team as well. At what point did you share with him that you wanted to go start your own company? Is this something that, actually, let me backtrack a little bit. In terms of sequencing, I'm always fascinated by this. Whenever we talk to anyone here at the Cornell Tech um, series, did you always know that you wanted to start a company and as a result you were kind of on the lookout for concepts or ideas? Or did you come up with a concept and then realize, oh, you know what, I should do this. This should be a company I start. I absolutely always wanted to start something that millions and hundreds of millions of people would one day use. I never felt ready before Zola. And I, I was never really looking for ideas to start. I was really thinking about, am I ready with the right skills and experience? Mm -hmm. And after four years at Guilt, I had, that was the most incredible experience for starting a startup because I got to start a mini company within the umbrella of a bigger company. And that was the best thing I could have ever done. But I actually didn't feel ready at the end of that four years at Guilt. So I joined another startup in New York um, called Chloe and Isabel as the chief product officer. And it was only until I went there and I started doing that job within a few months, I realized I've done this job before for the mm -hmm. last four years. I've actually learned everything <laughs> that I would need to. And I actually now feel ready to start something. And it was then that I told the CEO there that I was leaving, I would start my own thing. I wanted to give a lot of notice mm -hmm. and, and went to start Zola a few months later. Now, how did you come up with the idea of Zola? By the way, what does Zola mean or who, who is Zola? Is Zola a person? No, Zola means love in the Zulu language. Ah. But the reason that we picked the name Zola is because it was a lot of learning from our days at Guilt where we found guilt was a very successful name because it was short, four letters, easy to spell, ah. and we could put our own brand onto it, and that's exactly what we wanted to do with Zola as well. Gotcha. Now talk about the, the moment that led to your forming a wedding registry company. What was the aha moment, the, the, the point at which you said, wait a minute, I can make this a business, yeah. and this is the one that I want to start? Well, it was started, like many successful startups, out of personal need in that 2013, which was the year that we were brainstorming, was also the year all my friends got married at exactly the same time. <laughs> and we all have that year. It's a very expensive year. <laughs> you're going to a wedding every weekend. You're buying a lot of presents. And I was shopping on a lot of my friends' department store registries and finding that it was the worst e-commerce shopping experience I had ever seen. And talking to my co-founder, Nobu, He's married, and he was complaining about how painful it was from the couple's perspective. We had 
worked in design and product and technology together, building great products. And so we knew we could do a much better job. And we knew our friends getting married deserved a much better product. And it was through that process of testing, design, prototype, iteration over the course of many months that mm -hmm. we got to something that we knew was going to work. OK, it's been a number of years since I got married and had to deal with wedding registries. So let's talk through all the problems that you found when in that year of 2013 when you were going to weddings and you were dealing with all kinds of different registries and you're frustrated by it and, and what Zola does to fix it. Uh, you've told me how couples have to register at a number of different sites. On average, how many? So before Zola launched, three was the average number of registries that a couple would have. Okay, so the goal is Zola can make that into one. Yeah, and really what we heard from hundreds of different user interviews when we were first thinking about the idea for Zola was we heard the same three things kept coming up again and again. It was very consistent. So the first was that couples want everything they want from products to experiences to cash all in the one place. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to set up three different registries. <clears throat> and so that was one thing that we do. Second is couples today spend on average $35,000 on one wedding day because they want it to be personal and reflect who they are. And you couldn't personalize your registry and the department stores in any way. And we knew that couples wanted to fully personalize everything to do with their registry and ultimately their wedding. And so we allowed them to do that. And then the third big aha moment, which was actually surprising, was hearing couples say, you know, the worst part about registering is when the gifts start turning up, <laughs> which is counterintuitive because you would think that's the happiest moment. But actually, couples would show us pictures and say, you know, when I, someone buys me a gift, it just starts turning up and I have no idea who sent it or what's in the box, or if I want to keep it, I'm away on honeymoon, boxes are piling up on my doorstep, they're getting stolen, I'm so stressed out, I'm not ready yet. And we thought, this is a very solvable problem using technology. What if we only send something to someone once they say they actually want it? Aha. <laughs> and, and so you know, those three things were the ways that we thought we could truly innovate to serve couples. Mm -hmm. And still, we are the only registry that lets people do that today. You also allow people to do it on their phone as well, on the go. Because up until now, it's complicated. There's all these little buttons and tabs. You have to go on your PC or your laptop or your Chromebook. You have to have a big screen. Yes. You can now do it on your phone. So that, that idea that it's cross devices, cross platforms is critical. Yes, it turns out couples today who are the millennial generation really want to live on their phone. And before Zola, you know, on average, a couple has to use 20 different apps or services or products to plan one day, mm. when really you want it to be as easy as you know, ordering a car or a hotel or a table on your phone. Um, and we are really driving to be able to help couples do that. OK, people also want their wedding site and their registry to be really personal. Yes. And you're offering them a kind of one-stop shop yes. uh, destination. There's a little bit of tension there. How do you help them accomplish that personal, uh, unique feel while providing them everything at the same time and everyone else? Well, so what you're talking about, I think, is our 
second product that we launched last year, which is Zola Weddings. Uh -huh. And what that includes is our free wedding website, our guest list manager, and our checklist for all your to-dos to plan your wedding. And really, we launched this because this was the number one request we were hearing from couples who were saying, I love you for my registry. Why can't I just add a few more details about my wedding and I'll make it my wedding website and then I'm done. And so we did that. And it turns out that that product has been much more successful than we could have ever imagined because couples today really want things to be all easy, integrated, seamless mm -hmm. in the one place, mm -hmm. but they want design help to make it look beautiful. They want to pick from a palette of colors and have it reflect who they are. And so that is what we focus on 24-7 with this product. Now, who do you think is your competition? I, I was talking with one of my producers downstairs who actually is engaged and getting married soon, and she showed me Zola on her phone, and then she mentioned a whole bunch of other websites, uh, Honey Fund, for instance. Mm -hmm. She also said that she has a registry on Amazon that she doesn't use. Um, and of course, back when I was getting married, people went on the knot.com. Are these guys your competitors? I would say we compete against them in the different products that we offer, mm -hmm. but across the entire suite of products and tools, there's no one that does everything that we do. And there's certainly no one that does it all on the website, on your mobile device, serving every couple, no matter who you are, no matter what your sexual orientation is, no matter what you want your wedding to look like or your religion, we are there to serve you. And, and that is what is unique. And that's why we're the fastest growing wedding company in the country. Okay, so there's your, there's your pitch line. We're the fastest growing wedding company in the country. Well, you became that with the help of funding, but you have this concept all built out and you've thought it through. You figured out the problem you want to solve. Let's talk about the process to get funding for your company. Um, in the pitching process, Kevin Ryan of Guilt Group was a key part of your funding round, um, yes. fundraising, especially yes. in the seed round, right? Yes, correct. So Kevin Ryan, because we had worked with him for many years at Guilt, was our seed investor as well as joined as the chairman of the board and a co-founder. Mm -hmm. And when I tell other founders this, they say to me, wow, you're so lucky. You just got given your seed money from someone you knew. That sounds awesome, so fast. And what I say to them is, no, I actually slogged my guts out for four <laughs> years to get that funding. I worked 24 seven and it was only because I showed what I could do for four years that he was willing to give me the seed funding. Okay, so he played a critical round in the seed funding, but in subsequent rounds you went outside and as Garrett showed us, you went to traditional bankers and, and VC firms and everything. And I want to ask about the pushback that you got uh, from some investors in those subsequent funding rounds, especially because what you're pitching is something unique to a certain group of people, a certain population. I mean, I can't relate to it because it's been years since I got married. I would imagine that a banker who's in his 50s in New York probably can't relate to it either. You are 100% correct. <laughs> Fundraising is never the most fun part of starting a startup particularly if it is a product where you are pitching a product that is primarily serving a female audience and you are pitching it to a VC industry that is primarily male, 
they, for the most part, got married 15 to 20 years ago. And even then, they didn't really do much of the wedding planning work. Wait, so, they told you this? They would tell you this straight up? Yes. I, well, I, I did certainly hear VC say, you know, I got married 20 years ago, and my wife seemed fine with the registry, so why <laughs> What's the problem? Why, yeah, I don't understand. But those were not the VCs that we ultimately had invest in Zola. I think the, because it was harder to show that emotional connection to the problem and how the product solved this better than anything else, we focused on how is this business model innovating, how are we redoing retail, and, and we had the numbers to show it, mm -hmm. and they absolutely got it. Okay, so talk to us about some of the numbers because I was taken aback by how big or how valuable the wedding industry is in the U.S. and then globally. Yeah. It is a $100 billion industry in the U.S. And globally, it's a $300 billion industry. And when you think about it, weddings is one of the few industries remaining where we haven't seen a dominant startup player or disruptor emerge to take the market. Um, Zola right now is the best place, company, to be that disruptor, and we will do that. And people spend how much for a wedding on average? So on average in the country, it's 35000 uh, We all are in New York. The average is a little higher for a wedding here. It's about 75000 <laughs> And still climbing. All right. Um, so when you talk to these, uh, these VC guys who didn't quite get it, and said, oh, but this wasn't a problem 20 years ago. My wife dealt with this, or my partner dealt with this. Um, and this becomes something that becomes problematic when you're a woman pitching a, a, a woman-centric concept. What's your advice to female founders who run up against this problem? Because let's face it, most of the investors out there are going to be men. My number one piece of advice here is that it's never personal, so don't take it personally pitch, get the feedback, do your best, and keep going. And what I found is that in the early days, I would get very emotionally invested in every single no, when the reality is that there's so many other reasons why an investor might not invest in your company, apart from you or the team or the idea. It, it might have to do with where their firm is, it might have to do with their position in their team right now, it might be that they just invested in a competitor, there's so many reasons. And so it's just a matter of how can you find, you really just need a few people who have a very shared vision and are people that you think will be the right partners for your business and that part of the equation is just as important as getting a term sheet and when you have that, uh, that is one of the best, most impactful things you can do for your business. Okay, so keep looking for the right kinds of investors, the ones who understand it and get it. Yep, and don't take it personally. Now, having pitched to both investors in California and in New York, what would you say is the biggest difference in how they framed their questions to you, how they understood your business, and the kinds of questions they asked of you? I found New York investors uh, more pragmatic, which is- Surprise, surprise. Right <laughs> up my alley. Uh, so investors in New York tend to be uh, very interested, and rightly so, in the business model, 
in how a product might monetize, in how you have hard evidence to support the growth projections that you have in your plan. I, you know, I found Silicon Valley investors tend to think about how, how can we assess product market fit and then what are all the possible product adjacencies or expansion opportunities that you can go into. And so for us and for me, the biggest lesson that I took from my time at Gilt was that actually you need both mm -hmm. and without one, the other one doesn't matter. So what I mean by that is you need to develop a product that people love, that they're kind of pulling out of your hands. But just as important, you need a business model that works, that can support the company to grow and ultimately fulfill whatever dream you have for that business. All right, so let's talk about the business model, the one that the New York VCs asked about. Um, couples for Zola, couples who use Zola, they don't need to pay for anything, right? It's, it's free, free to them. Okay, so how do you make your money? Is it through commission? Is it through the spread between the wholesale and the retail price? Yes, we, uh, the business model is actually one of the things I'm most proud of, and I think one of the things that we have innovated upon the most. And it is a e-commerce model that has a lot of the benefits that, you, that are great about e-commerce, which is we have an e-commerce customer experience. We have e-commerce margins in that we buy at a wholesale price and we sell at a retail price like any other e-commerce player. But we don't have a lot of the burdens of e-commerce like we have virtually no inventory and we have virtually no returns. And both those things are often the killers of any e-commerce business. You said virtually no returns and virtually no inventory. So there is some. Tiny. Explain. So uh, let's take returns, for example. So when I mentioned this feature where we don't ship anything to a couple until they say they actually want it, mm. what it means is that you can receive all your gifts, come back from your honeymoon, look at your list, and then do a virtual exchange to perhaps put it all towards a couch. So that, that is actually a pretty common behavior that we see people um, doing virtually instead of doing physically like mm -hmm. they do in many other retail stores. But as always, there are things that people might ship to themselves or send to themselves that they think they want, and then they change their mind. And so then you know, we, they, they do a return. Through but you. Through, through us, but uh -huh. that is tiny. That is you know, under 3%. OK, and one thing I took away from our earlier conversation is that you told me there's a lot of predict predictability in your business. Yeah. You don't get a lot of surprises. You know exactly how much people are going to order, when you need to ship it by. That surprised me. I, you know, just it's, it's hard for any company to get that level of predictability. How did you achieve that? How, how does that work? This is actually one of the best things about being in the weddings business is that people pick a wedding date often 12 to 18 months in advance. And so when people sign up for Zola and let's say create a wedding website or a registry with us or they print their invitations with us, we know exactly when they're getting married and then we know uh, based on that how many gifts on average a couple will receive. Mm -hmm. And with those two pieces of information, we can very reliably predict the business for the coming year. For the coming year, not even for the coming quarter, for the coming year. For the coming year. All right, so what's been the biggest surprise so far then? Because there's always surprises. There's always things that you don't plan for. I think the biggest thing is 
when we were first starting, I would hear a lot of couples tell me that they want experiences, that they're not as interested in physical things anymore. <laughs> and, and so as a result, at launch, we had a lot of experiences. But what we saw in the data was very different. We saw couples starting to use our Add to Zola button, which, where you can add things that we don't have in our store. And we saw them adding a lot of the traditional brands like you know, Le Creuset and Allclad that they claimed they didn't want. They claimed they didn't want as much. And so very quickly, we had to pivot our merchandising strategy and roadmap to really give people what they were clearly telling us in the data that they wanted. But at the same time, you have to make all those experiences available because they all say that, that that's what they're looking for. Yes, and they still, for the most part, everyone has some combination of products and experiences and cash. Now, you mentioned um, printing invitations. Uh, that's something that you work on here. This is a We're Getting Married. Uh, this the is the website. website. But if yeah. you look over there, there's a Save the Date card. Yes. And this is something you do charge your users for. What's the strategy here? I, why is everything else free, but then this is something you are charging for? Because unfortunately, paper is not free. <laughs> uh, the, this, so this actually launched one month ago. So it's very new. And again, this was driven by really the number one request that we heard from couples once we launched the wedding website. Everyone was like, can I just print my invitations that look like my wedding website? And, and so we decided to allow a way for couples to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and our goal is to really provide an upscale, luxury-feeling product at great value. Mm -hmm. And so in the one month that we, it's been out in market, it has far surpassed projection. And so that was based on feedback that you got from yes. your users. Was uh, the physical store also based on feedback you got from your users, showroom, pop-up stores, where you showcase a lot of the products that your users can register for? Yes. And Pop-ups and experimental retail experiences has been something that we've been experimenting with in different ways in the last four years since we've launched. So this is the current iteration that we have, uh, a townhouse experience actually right next to our office. Mm. Um, in prior years, we've had a physical ground floor pop-up um, townhouse in Soho. And so we will continue to experiment with different retail formats because we know that there's certain categories couples really want to touch and feel, namely what you see here, towels and bed sheets. Very, very and Pillows important. with anchors on them, apparently. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, is this also about building brand awareness? I mean, how much advertising do you do? How do people find out about Zola? They don't walk past the townhouse and they're like, oh, I have to go in there and check it out. Well, the number one way that people find out about us and the number one driver of our growth has been people going to weddings where Zola is the registry or the wedding website. So this is actually one of the things that is most exciting about Zola is that we have this inbuilt virality mm. into the product. Um, so we can then focus on if we have a great product and it's better than anything else, people will naturally use it, they'll invite their friends to check it out and then their friends will use it when they get married or tell their friends. So that has always been the number one way that we've grown. Um, we do all the other classic consumer commerce marketing channels that you might find any startup do. So we also you know, advertise Facebook, Google, Instagram, Pinterest. Mm -hmm. What is particularly compelling, <laughs> because we work 
and focus on people that are in a very specific time in their lives. We can really target, you know, when someone's pinning a lot of wedding things on Pinterest, that's someone we want to get in front of. I like what you said about how you're targeting someone at a very specific point in their life. And during that period in their life, once they register with you and they build their wedding website with you, um, couples are super active Zola users for what, six months to a year to two years as they prepare for their big day. But then they get married and they kind of disappear, right? I mean, how do you grow with those users? How do you make sure that you keep a level of engagement? Because these are very valuable users, mm -hmm. but um, it seems like a lost opportunity if you don't get to interact with them afterwards. Actually, it's, it's kind of the opposite, which is the amount of time when someone is planning their wedding is in and of itself a huge opportunity that we haven't even begun to fully solve yet. And so that's why our mission is to help the couple with every piece of their wedding planning journey mm -hmm. and do so in a very condensed amount of time. Because even in the early phase of the business that we are in right now, the lifetime value or the amount that we are able to capture and serve the couple with is more than most e-commerce or retail stores. It's more than what they do over the course of many, many years. And so it's actually efficient for us to be really focused on one period in time. Mm -hmm. And if we can serve that couple, and if they trust us, and if we can build a community there where people are telling their friends about us, then we have opportunities to expand into the few years post-marriage. But right now, we are far away from that. So post-marriage, you mean like a baby registry, for instance? It's really in the life change from going from a single person to a married person and all the things that couples need help with in that change. Changing your name, for instance? Exactly. Okay. There's money to be made in changing your name? Yes. <laughs> yes? Judges. Courts. courts and judges. Well, explain the opportunity there. Well, so I think the... Many of what we provide today and many of the things that we continue to build, we don't monetize directly. Mm. But the strategy is if we can build this ecosystem of wedding planning products and then post-wedding products that you want to be in and you use us for your wedding registry, that in itself is a great business. And it works for the couple because they have many more things that they get for free than they ever had before. And it's similar to the Google strategy in that Google has one product that they monetize. They build a lot of free products around mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And they bring people into their ecosystem and ultimately have a great business. All right, so your focus clearly is on growth right now, and you recently raised, what, $100 million in Series D funding um, to fund current operations to also prepare for growth as well, invest for growth. At what point um, does being profitable surpass growth as a priority? What, what's your thinking on that turning point? Right now, we are in the very robust investment phase. I talked about how, on average, couples probably use 20 different apps or mm -hmm. products or services to plan their wedding. And right now, we have a fraction of that. And so our goal is to continue to build more and more products, build a bigger community, hire the best e-commerce talent in New York mm -hmm. to really, first and foremost, 
help couples along the wedding planning journey. Okay, so make yourself a presence in the U.S. We're not even talking about scaling Zola to global markets, overseas markets or anything. Not yet. Maybe someday. Okay, so not yet. Do you, you mentioned disruptor to the wedding industry. Do you consider yourself a disruptor to the wedding industry? I would say we're redoing wedding planning. Yes. Good. I was, I was worried you were being too modest there. You're disrupting it. Yes. All right, let's, um, I wanted to get to some of the other questions, kind of the fun questions here as well. You had mentioned to me that you have a service that you call, I mean, unofficially, you call it Tinder for registry. Um, explain what this is, because Tinder should not be coming up in any conversation with wedding and registering for wedding. <laughs> we actually get a lot of brides telling us that they love this feature on Zola, which is on our mobile app, where uh, we call it Blender. And what it is is that you can <laughs> swipe through different home products. And if you swipe right, it, you add it to your registry. If you swipe left, it dismisses it and you see the next one. And in this simple interaction, we find people spend an incredible amount of time swiping through different products and really engaging in, in the Zola wedding registry planning experience. Um, so that has been one of the aha moments where we were like, you know, that is really a way that people love that interaction. Maybe they're a bit sad they can no longer, <laughs> you know, browse different options. And so let's give them a way to do that. They're still accustomed to swiping right and swiping left, so that you allow them to continue that even in this new phase in their life. You need something for Fortnite as well, for Fortnite addicts. Um, all right, let's talk. What is the best-selling item on the registry? You mentioned Le Crusette. It's the KitchenAid stand mixer. Ah. Every year. Every year? Everyone loves it. Really? There are that many bakers out there? Apparently there are. And what color? What, what's the price point, too? Uh, so I think it's around 300 uh -huh. and blue is a very popular color. Blue. Does it ever go on sale? Yes. It does. Yes. And, and if someone registers for it, they'll get this, the lowest price yes. that you yes. scan for? and we price match. Okay. So we both sell it, and if someone can find it for a cheaper price, we match it. What's the most unique wedding gift? For, let, let's talk physical gifts mm -hmm. first, and then we can segue to experiences. So we're seeing an increasing trend in hiking and camping equipment. It seems like a lot of couples are going to be doing a lot of camping together. Huh. So tents, sleeping bags, hiking poles. We're seeing a lot of this on registry. So there's a link there to experiences yes. as well. Yes. What about um, saving money to buy something big? Yeah, so in cash funds, we see the most popular kind of cash fund that people create on their registries is still for their honeymoons. Uh, a lot of people specify the destinations like Hawaii or Maldives or mm -hmm. Thailand. Uh, but other cash funds that I have enjoyed seeing on Zola registries, uh, one couple registered for a lifetime supply of avocados. <laughs> and more and more couples we see registering for puppy funds and interestingly for IVF funds as oh. well. And how does that work? Um, you're allowing people to register for funds or to, to collect money for funds. Do they then send it through you or do they send it through Venmo or Zelle? Yeah, so couples can put up a cash fund. Their guests will, will transact through Zola mm -hmm. and then we have the ability to transfer it via ACH into the couple's bank account. <laughs> 
So you're also doing money transfers. <laughs> Remarkable. Okay, so you work with banks, financial services, you work with these different brands directly. You're not working with, say, Bloomingdale's, you're working with KitchenAid directly, right? We started off and are primarily working with, today, over 600 brands, and okay. we have over 60,000 products, which took four years to build. More recently, we have started to work with retailers where we see they fill a gap in the assortment that our couples really want. So, for example, I mentioned camping and hiking. So Backcountry is a camping retailer that's very popular, and we partner with Backcountry, so we are now the only registry where you can register for backcountry brands on Zola. And we will be doing more and more of those partnerships where it makes sense. What brands are you most excited about right now? I mean, you've got more than 500 brands, and I can't even think of more than 100 brands at the moment. Which ones have caught your eye and are ones that you want to showcase in your stores? Well, personally, I love, uh, on the product front, I love Sonos. And my go-to gift that I give to friends is the Nambe salad bowl. So heads up, if you invite me to a wedding, you will get that. Um, but the, the things on experiences that I love and that I'm proud to have on the site include you know, Airbnb, Delta gift cards, SoulCycle. Mm -hmm. um, there is really no limit to the experiences that we add and that we see people want. And you allow uh, couples to pull in products from any site as well. So you get to see what they're thinking of that you didn't already come up with. Exactly. And it was through this feature that we saw you know, a lot of people pulling in Instant Pot, which mm -hmm. was the number one thing everyone wanted. And so we added that recently, um, sous vide mm -hmm. machines also on trend right now. One thing you don't have right now, according to my producer, is uh, you don't have ratings for uh -huh. products or services. Yes. Why not? Coming soon. Coming soon, yes. okay. How, what, what's, how operationally is that difficult to implement? The thing we're thinking about is how do we make it useful from day one? Mm. And with any ratings feature, the, it takes time mm -hmm. to build up. And so we're trying to think about how can you come day one and already have information that you might find useful from other people? But you have to get people to commit to already writing reviews as well. Can you pull in from somewhere else or it has to be organically uh, grown? These are all excellent product management questions. <laughs> we're, we're working through these things exactly. Okay, TBD yes. is the answer. Yes. All right, um, Shan, who is the Jerry Yang of today? I mean, if, if, if you were, or if you were a young woman, Yes. Growing up in Australia yes. and looking at Silicon Valley, looking at New York, looking at entrepreneurs, who do you think is a Jerry Yang that would inspire the next generation of, of founders? Katrina Lake. Who's she? So Katrina Lake is the founder and CEO of Stitch Fix mm -hmm. and someone that, that I and many other people admire greatly because she built a fashion e-commerce business that really leverages data she did it with significantly less funding than you've seen any other startup take. And she got to an incredible scale in her business in record time. And she also had a baby <laughs> during that, Superwoman that then. You know, four to five years of incredible growth. Um, so she is someone that when you look at her team, you see a really deep, impressive bench of people. They've built an innovative product and She's the new Jerry Yang on my wall. 
Do you worry that tech entrepreneurs are getting a bad name, the tech industry as a whole is getting a bad name right now with um, the public backlash against Facebook, against Twitter, against the social media companies, and how, how wealthy the top executives are getting as the country kind of gets more entrenched in this divisiveness? Yeah. And what we talk a lot about on our leadership team is how can we, within our own backyard, mm -hmm. set the right example for our team and for our customers? And so every day we're talking about, so let's just take, for example, you know, diversity mm -hmm. as something where you really want to set a high bar. This is something that we communicate to our entire team is important to us as a company value that we won't compromise on. And as a result, we have been able to maintain it, even though it's something that requires work every day. Thank you, Shan. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.